Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Michael Nava, whose latest novel is called Carved in Bone. It's a Henry Rios mystery novel. There are, over the years, I think seven or eight, depending upon how you want to count them, Henry Rios novels. He's also the author of a um, historical novel, which is the first volume of a series, and that one is called City of Palaces. That's right. Michael Nava is an attorney. He's worked for various judges over the years, and his books reflect that. What makes the Henry Rios novels important is that over the years, there have been very, very few, only a handful of mysteries where the protagonist is a gay man. In Lay Your Sleeping Head, which is a rework of your first novel, you have a very long memoir at the end of it, which talks about how you became a writer. At the time, there were no other mystery writers writing about gay characters except Joseph Hansen. Is that correct? Yeah. Joe was the only one that I was aware of, and I think the only one out there, actually. When I discovered him in the 70s, when I was in law school, I'd already been interested in noir because I saw the, the classic private investigator as a metaphor for what it was like to be gay. And reading Joe, who got there first, really gave me permission to try to strike out and write my own. Well, when you say that being a private investigator was kind of a metaphor for being gay, in that memoir, you mentioned specifically Marlowe and the book The Long Goodbye. But you have something else in mind here? You know, just generally. I mean, it was Chandler, really, who turned me on to this idea. That book is significant because I think it's, I don't know what you would call it, homosocial, homoerotic. It's the only time in the Marlowe series when Marlowe actually has an emotional connection to another character that seems authentic, and that other character happens to be a man named Terry Lennox. But what I meant more generally was, you know, the classic private investigator like Marlowe is someone who lives, as Chandler said, he goes down these mean streets but is not himself a mean man. He has, he has a code, an honorable code by which he lives, and he embodies those virtues that society purports to honor but rarely does. But because he does the dirty work for his clients, he's viewed as uh, an outcast and something of an outsider. And because the nature of his work involves him with, you know, takes him beyond the facade of respectable society, he has a front seat to the hypocrisies of society. And to me, all of that really resonated with me as a gay man. I mean, had you read about that? Or was that something that you picked up on your own at that point? I had not read about it. It was really something I picked up on my own. It turns out that I was not the only one, you know, in the 
90s, there was a wave of mystery writers, Sarah Paretsky, whose PI was a feminist. So all of these writers picked up on this notion of, of bringing to center stage characters who in the classic private eye books had been marginal and usually described in fairly derogatory terms. Well, Spencer uh, by, by Parker is sort of similar to that too. I mean, he's not particularly respected. None of these people are respected by the police. No. I like Spencer's, I like the early works. I think later he sort of slipped into a formula. But yeah, the, the early works kind of bristled with that classic more energy. But at the time that you were writing, that was sort of when Parker was writing his early works and, well, they all were at that point. I mean, you know, at that point, I guess Grafton was only up to C or D. <laughs> you and Koretsky was quite prominent. I think she at that point had become one of the founders of Sisters in Crime. And then Mosley's book started appearing, I think, in the early 90s. Your early books, your first novel, The Little Death, which you rewrote as Lay Your Sleeping Head more recently. Now, that novel was rejected because we don't know the audience. Well, we do know the audience, but nobody wanted it until uh, Allison Press picked it up. That's right. Allison was a small gay publisher out of Boston. The book I have here is Death of Friends. At what point did, did you get picked up by Putnam? So actually, uh, it was the third book in the Rio series. Uh, the first two, The Little Death and Golden Boy, were published by Sasha Allison, at that point, I got a call from an agent in New York who told me, you know, if you continue writing these books, I can get you a deal with a big publisher. So, you know, I parted ways with Sasha in a very amicable way and went initially to HarperCollins and then Putnam offered me, you know, more money and more exposure. So that's how I ended up there. So at that particular point, your career was catching on. What stopped you? Was it just that the mid-list collapsed? Well, no. I thought I'd stopped writing the series in 2000 with Rag and Bone, which was supposed to be the last book. And it was a combination of things. I, I was tired of writing mysteries, not tired of the character of Rios, but of the formulaic aspect of mysteries. I was also, frankly, traumatized by the AIDS epidemic, you know, dealing with some issues of depression. And I just needed to step away from it. I mean, you continued to write because eventually you wrote a historical novel. Right. That took me 20 years. So that's what I was doing, along with practicing law. So you figured you'd never go back to Henry Rios? I did. I thought I was done with Rios. Well, Michael, no. Fortunately, I didn't kill him off. Yeah, Joseph Hansen couldn't have gone back when he killed off Branstad. No, no, he couldn't have. So you had this detective, this Mexican-American gay detective, who was in San Francisco in the early books, moves to L.A., there are gay elements that are there, of course, but these are straightforward mysteries Yeah, in the original incarnation. Right. What brought you back to the little death and the decision to resurrect Henry Rios? So in 2015, I got the rights to my books reverted to me from the uh, international conglomerate that had controlled the rights up to that point. And... Rather than renew my license with them, I decided that, you know, these books are my legacy and I wanted to take control of them. And so I was going to publish them through my own publishing company. And so I began to reread them because uh, I thought I would just make some minor changes. And I reread The Little Death and I thought, you know, when I wrote that book, I didn't know I was going to write a series. 
You were 25. Too. Right, and I was 25 years old, and I'm a much better writer now. And so it turned into a full-scale revision, and although the plot remains the same and the characters are the same, I thought it was different enough. I only used 5% of the original text. Now, at the time, you were actually doing what Rios was doing, which is interviewing people who'd been arrested. Is that right? Yeah. So when I was in law school at Stanford, uh, my job was to uh, interview people who'd been arrested to determine whether or not they should be released on their own recognizance or held overnight um, for a bail hearing before a judge. The first chapter of the book takes place in the basement of Palo Alto City Hall, which is where the jail was located back in 1981 or 80. There's an interesting moment, which you mentioned in, the, in your memoir afterward, that the smell of the place reminded you of a gay bathhouse. So there was a special section of the jail, which the jailers called the Queen's Tank. The male musk was overwhelming. And that's where they kept people who were visibly gay. And also, because Stanford was one of the first places that did sexual reassignment surgery, there were a number of transgender women there. Every time I approached them, they would like hoot and holler at me. The story is kind of the femme fatale, only the femme fatale is a blonde twink. Right. When you created the character of Hugh, that creation, you were thinking of the femme fatales of the 40s? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I was thinking of, um, of uh, the femme fatale and the uh, movie version of uh, the Maltese Falcon, what's her name, O'Shaughnessy, Bridget O'Shaughnessy. I was thinking of Lauren Bacall, with whom I share a birthday. <laughs> you know, of all of these sort of glamorous, troubled women who walk into the office with a story that's not quite credible. <laughs> only he was a boy. <laughs> right. Only he was a, uh, he was a very pretty boy. And you said that, that at a certain point when they go into the bedroom and the door closes, you kind of figured you'd never get it published if you followed what happened afterward. Right. So when I wrote it in the 80s, you know, I thought if I put anything explicit in it, it would be dismissed as pornography. And so I didn't. When I rewrote it, I thought, the hell with that, you know, because actually how people have sex is an invaluable gauge of their character. And in this case, it moved the narrative along. So I did include those details for that purpose, not out of mere salaciousness, but because it was important. Michael Nava, you also mentioned that the fact that he was Mexican-American doesn't really play a role in the book, but in subtle, subtextual roles, it was always there. Yeah, I always knew it. I set out to create him as a Mexican-American, and so I felt that there was something about sort of his gravity. He was identifiably Mexican-American to me, not necessarily to to other readers in the first book. So when I went back, I, I was a little more explicit about some of that. Were you able to add more features of your own growing up at that point? Only in the sense that the journey of someone who is the first in his or her family to go to college and someone who feels like an outsider when he goes to a place like Stanford and encounters you know, a lot of quite well-off white kids and, and does know that he's not really part of that club. When you finished with the book, when you rewritten it and created the new title, at that point, were you starting to think, you know, I could do this for all my books? I knew I was going to go through all of them, but I felt that 
By the time I got to Howtown, which was the third book, I had learned how to write fiction. Okay. So I knew that from Howtown on, those books were probably pretty pretty good. What was the second book? Golden Boy. Do you plan to rewrite that? Yeah, I'm actually. So it's partly rewritten in Carved in Bone, and then I'm working on a, a sequel to Carved in Bone, which is the other shoe. Both I'm allowing The Little Death and Golden Boy. I'm not republishing those books. I'm letting them go out of print. So you began working on the second book, and then it changed so much that it became Carved in Bone? No. When I went and looked at the series, I realized that I had, because of the way I was writing the books, uh, I had missed uh, a really crucial moment in queer history, which was the advent of the AIDS crisis. I mean, when I wrote The Little Death, that was before AIDS, and then Golden Boy, which was published in 88, you know, we were already in it. But that period around 83, 84... I had missed that just because, you know, of the way I was writing things. So I wanted to go back and to fill that in. So do any of the characters from Carved in Vone, do they come from the earlier book? Yeah, Larry Ross comes from Golden Boy. That's, he's, that's his sponsor. He's, he's a sponsor. He's a, he's a fairly minor character in Golden Boy. In this book, he's much more prominent and a very different character, which is why I can't republish Golden Boy. It would just be too confusing. After Carved in Bone, when you move on to the plot of Golden Boy, it has to be completely rewritten then. Well, I'm just discarding Golden Boy, and I'm, re I'm writing a new Rios book um, set in L.A. in 1986. It's a sequel to Carved in Bone. So what happened was that you were planning to just rework these things, and suddenly you found yourself writing a new book. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Two new books, and then there'll be a third one, I think. I want to bring Rios into the present. Well, I was going to ask you about the two parallel stories in Carved in Bone because one of them very much represents not me because I came to San Francisco. I just moved out here. I was 25 and uh, I wasn't a naive kid in that sense. I came from New York City. But I met several, several people, the Bill Ryans, who came and changed in different ways Eventually, they all died. I mean, that's the group that never survived. Was he based on anybody? Well, he's a composite character of a number of men I've known like you over the years who had that story, who, were, who basically came to San Francisco or Los Angeles as refugees after their families had cast them out and, and were forced to, you know, sort of create their own lives, as we all were, really. But some of us, you and me, for example, probably we embrace the opportunity. But not all gay men wanted to be outlaws. And they had a very difficult time being estranged from their families and from everything, all, everything they knew growing up. And I think we're deeply conflicted. Did you have any trouble writing about those days in the 70s? I mean, going back in your mind? No, actually, that was fun because, you know, I did grow up in Sacramento, and I went to law school at Stanford from 78 to 81. So San Francisco was like the golden city. It was Oz, and I, I remember just being dazzled by it. And so I gave that sense of wonder to Bill Ryan. We don't know who Bill Ryan is in relation to Henry Rios, the two stories come together. You always had that charted out, I would assume. Oh, yeah, of course. Do you work from an outline then? I used to, but I now basically do a five or six-page synopsis. That's my map. 
And does the synopsis change much? Of course. You know, it's like like all maps, you know, sometimes you go a different way (laughs) as long as you get to the place that you want to get to at the end. Did you know who the bad guy was? Did you know what the scam was? So I did know that, actually. My friend Matt Coles, who was uh, in the ACLU for many years, he and I dated when I was in law school, and he's the one who told me about that whole insurance company scam. And so I've had it in my head for 40 years trying to figure out how I'm going to use this. <laughs> but yeah, when you write a mystery, you have to know the end, and you know you work backwards. I've talked to writers who say that sometimes they get to that point and they realize, oh my God, the killer is someone else. <laughs> That's never happened to me. I've always been pretty clear that uh, about who the killer is. When you were writing those books and when you're writing your historical novel, are there times when that synopsis find, you find constricting? You know, if it's not working, I just, I just don't pay attention to it. That's the pleasure of writing is you're taken in ways you didn't expect to go. Characters develop in ways you didn't think they were going to develop. And uh, it's almost, you know, you're almost a channel in some ways. That brings up the question that I've talked to a lot of writers about. You know, the character told me to do this. For you, what does that actually mean? It's not so much the character tells me what to do, but, you know, I may have in my mind a certain interaction between two characters. In this book, between Henry and Adam, you know, the young Chinese-American guy he gets involved with, I thought their relationship was going to be one thing, but as I started writing it, it didn't feel, what I had in my mind didn't feel authentic. So I shifted it until it felt, yeah, this is actually how two people in this situation would talk to each other, and this is actually what would happen. In my mind, I thought, oh, they they fall in love, but actually they don't fall in love because it's not that kind of relationship. And that injected a note of, sentimentality that I felt was really inauthentic. You know, with uh, Bill's relationship to Nick was another one where I just, I was kind of feeling my way through it as I was writing it, like, how would they react? And I mean, I sort of knew the trajectory of the relationship, but I didn't know all the details. Um, And so scenes would suggest themselves to sort of illustrate what was going on. When you named him Nick, that was the original name of Henry Rios. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've always loved that name. If I could have named myself, I would have been Nick. You know, as a writer, you could have. When I I published the first book, The Little Death, you know, Sasha Allison asked me if I was comfortable using my own name. And I said, "Um, of course, you know, I'm not ashamed of who I am or what I write. Of course, I wanted to appear under my name. How was it going back to your 25 to 30-year-old self and trying to recapture a character that you'd written so much about? Well, he's never left me. And uh, writing Rios was fairly easy because I understand him in depth. That wasn't difficult. I had sort of overcome my, my aversion to writing mysteries, and I was interested in it again, and sort of weaving the plot of a mystery into books that also make political and social commentary. You know, I like to use the example of a clothesline. You know, you've got the clothesline and you can hang whatever you want from it. And whatever you want from it could be as literary or as political as you want. That's right. You know, I was just at BoucherCon recently on a panel. And one thing I said is, you know, mystery readers are, in my experience, unusually intelligent 
and open-minded, if you give them a good story, they'll stick around for the other stuff. They're interested in the other stuff, but you have to be a good mystery writer. You have to honor that and to do a good job with that. And if you do that, then you can slip other things in. In the rewrite, given that we're living in the age of Trump, do you completely put that out of your mind? I mean, the book is being written now. So the Michael Nava of now politically is different from the Michael Nava of 1980. Right. But, you know, I had the template for Layer Sleeping Head, The Little Death. And so I just adhered to that pretty strictly. And sort of it was easy to go back to those halcyon days of my youth. What I noticed in um, Carved in Bone was that uh, as someone who lived in the East Bay, I was telling you this before we went on the air, winds up negative. Though, of course, there was that period where I was freaking out, you know, every little bruise, you don't know what it is. But being where I was, which was not the center, which was not San Francisco, though, of course, I knew a lot of people there and in New York, you're part of it and yet at the same time slightly outside the world because they're not dropping around you. And I got the feeling in reading Carved in Bone that was sort of where Henry Rios and possibly Michael Nava was coming from too. Yeah, I think that's accurate. The book begins in 1984 before there was a test for determining one's status. So, of course, Rios is paranoid like every other gay man was about you know, the possibility that he might test positive for the HIV virus. But he was also quite preoccupied with reconstructing his life after nearly drinking himself to death and putting his practice back together. So there were other things on his mind. What I noticed in the book is that the atmosphere of the Castro of that time, which we try to put out of our mind now, that it was a plague and that you couldn't get away from it even if you could somehow step outside into the straight world of, say, for me, KPFA, for you, the law office. But you capture that in a way I've never seen any of anybody capture it. Did, did it put you back there into your own depression of the time? It did put me back there. I mean, I actually consulted, and I mentioned this at the end, the, uh, the Gay and Lesbian Historical Society archives in San Francisco. And they have a lot of memorabilia, notebooks, writings from just ordinary men who died during the plague. And so I went and I spent a couple afternoons reading some of these. And yeah, it put me right back there. For me, the people who didn't make it didn't. And then suddenly 1994 changed. Right. And they all did, or most of them did. But during that period, we didn't know. There was no way of knowing. And of course, what was happening in Washington is that Reagan just ignored it. More than ignored it, really. It wasn't just neglect. Did you consider giving Rios more of a political stance himself? No, because that's not who he is. He's political implicitly just by reason of his existence and what he does for work, which is to defend criminal defendants who, of course, are overwhelmingly men of color. And I thought, that's enough. I don't need for him to be making speeches. And again, you know, what we were talking about earlier is... I am writing a mystery. I'm not writing um, a political screed. So 
I have to be subtle about this, but I think the message is fairly clear when I think of what was going, what he thinks, what was going on at the time. Michael Nava, you grew up near Sacramento in a barrio, is that correct? In Sacramento. Single parent. My mother was married. My father was not in the picture. In fact, I never met him. So she was married to a, a, a horrible man. But you had a great grandmother. Yes, she was. She was kind of my, my grandmother was my refuge. School was my refuge and books were my refuge. What did you read at that point? When I was a little boy, I really wanted to be an archaeologist. So I read an awful lot of history, you know, and, uh, and I, yeah, mostly I read history. I didn't really read much fiction. And then I, I got interested in poetry. And so until I was in my early 20s, I was a poet. You had a revelation when you were 12 years old. Yeah, when I was 12, I realized I was gay, although the word I had for it then was queer. And there's a scene in Carved in Bone where um, the character Bill Ryan has this, he's standing by himself and he hears someone say, um, you're a queer, and he looks around and realizes there's no one there that he's actually said it. And that's actually what happened when I was 12. Were you out at Stanford? I've been out since I was 17. So yeah, I was out at Stanford. Would you just come up for the weekend and stick around the city? Yeah, so I would take the train up from Palo Alto and just hang out. And, you know, if I was lucky and I got picked up at a bar, I'd have a place to sleep. <laughs> if not, I would go to one of the bathhouses and sleep. Liberty Baths off Polk Street. Hard to sleep when, when uh, disco music is pounding. How did your uh, mother deal with it? I'm not close to my family. Uh, I did finally tell my mom when I was 25, and uh, her first response was, you know, does this mean you want to be a woman? And I said no, and now I regret that. I should have said, yeah, Ma, so we can go shopping for shoes together. What do you think? But, you know, that was not really, in my family, my homosexuality was not so much an issue and not as great an issue as my education because I come from a, a quite impoverished background. And so I jumped several levels in the social order, and, they, and that created a gap which persists to this day. When the first book came out, then anybody who didn't know would have to know if they knew the book. Right. And so, you know, I feel fortunate in that because uh, I wasn't close to my family, I never cared what they thought. I didn't have to deal with that. So your friends were your family? Chosen family. Well, one of the issues with that and during the AIDS epidemic, because I was still close with members of my family as well as my family out here, is that if your only family is dying right and left, that's horrible. Yes, it is. And, you know, there are many stories like that. I uh, mean, I have my own list. In writing Carved in Bone and in going back, were there any revelations that you came away with that you kind of hadn't had before that came just from the writing? Not so much revelation, but simply going back into time. And, you know, I, I started writing Carved in Bone the day after the election, the 2016 election. And it wasn't an intentional response. But it took me back to that time, a time of darkness and desperation, which is very much like the current moment. So, I mean, I did get that sense of history repeating itself. Michael Nava, during the period between the early books and as we go on to, toward today, 
You spent a lot of time working for judges, working in different courts. Did the fact that you were a mystery writer, that your hero was a, a gay detective, did any of that come up in any of your these circumstances? The judges I worked for, you know, I worked for the first African-American woman appointed to the Court of Appeal, and then I worked for the third Latino judge ever appointed to the California Supreme Court. And so these were obviously people who weren't going to be bothered by that. And they thought it was kind of, you know, dashing, really. I mean, <laughs> if anything, it lent an aura of uh, something to me. Are you still practicing? No, I retired three years ago from the law. Well, when you talk to colleagues, are Trump judges actually making an impression at lower levels that we don't know about? I haven't talked to any of my colleagues about that. District court judges, they're trial judges in the federal system. And so in individual cases, they can make a devastating difference. In terms of the development of the law, not so much. That's really the appellate courts, the Court of Appeal, and the Supreme Court. Of course, those are also controlled by Trump people at this point. Did you ever run into many Federalist Society people along the way? No, I haven't. In California, maybe you wouldn't. Not in the California judiciary, no, at least not in Los Angeles and San Francisco, which is where I practice. Did you ever get outside the state? No, I'm just a I'm California lawyer. Over those years, you must have, I would think, about a dozen ideas in your head for future stories based on cases that you would have worked on in your various jobs. Well, I think bits and pieces of those cases found their way into the books, um, you know, snatches of cross-examination or things that went on in court that I read about or observed. I mean, I was a trial lawyer initially. I was a prosecutor in Los Angeles. There is one case that continues to haunt me, and I think that will be the Rios. When I bring Rios into the present, that will be the fr that case will be the framework of that novel. But you actually have a period of his entire life. You can easily stick in things. I could, but you know, I have to feel motivated to do that. I mean, I have to feel like not writing a book just for the sake of writing a book, but because something is driving me. And in the case I have in mind, it's the only case in my 35 years of practicing law where I believed a defendant who had been convicted in this case of a capital crime was in fact factually innocent. I worked on that case at the court, and ultimately, his conviction was reversed. Michael Nava, had you considered when you decided to rewrite that you might find a regular publisher? So I could have stayed with Open Road Media, who had kept the books alive as e-books, and they were talking about reissuing them as print books. The original Rios books, you know, they were reviewed everywhere from People Magazine to the Wall Street Journal favorably. I gave Carved in Bone to um, David Ebershoff, you know, who wrote The Danish Girl, who blurbed it. And he said, this is a really good book, you know, and I know several editors who might be interested and so forth. But I'd done the New York publishing dance, and I really wanted to control my work. So I chose, I chose, deliberately chose not to pursue that. The next book will probably be published not by, uh, not by one of the big five publishers, but I'm working with a, a small publisher that does a, a small lesbian publisher, and they want to expand and publish gay men. And so they've asked me if I would be editor of their line. And so part of our deal is that the next Rios book would be published to them. Who's the publisher? Bywater Books. 
And they publish, you know, they're published between 15 and 20 books a year. What is the Henry Rios podcast? The Henry Rios podcast is an audio drama adaptation of Lay Your Sleeping Head. I took the book. I wrote a script out of it. I hired actors. We recorded it in Oakland. Uh, I hired a, a composer to write the original music and sound effects. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, and, and, and all on your tab. Yes. Has Hollywood ever come calling for these books? Well, I mean, the books have been under option over the years several times. They're currently under option. So this is the second or third year that the option's been renewed by a production company called Working Title. It expires in March, and then we'll see what happens if they renew it or not. A gay male detective of Mexican origin in the 1980s sounds perfect for streaming. So everyone says, I have my doubts because, you know, what I observe about the presence of the, the the gay male presence in film and TV is that it's still fairly stereotypic. Michael Nava, we have not brought up your other novel, which is the first of a trilogy. That is titled City of Palaces. It's a historical novel taking place in Mexico. Is that right? Right. It's set in Mexico between 1890 and 1912, which is the beginning, right at the beginning of the Mexican Revolution of 1910 and set largely in Mexico City. It was published in 2015 by the University of Wisconsin Press, and I actually just got the rights back to it. So are you going to publish it, self-publish, or sell yeah, it somewhere I'm, else? I'm going to I'm going to publish it through my through Persigo Press. What about the second volume of that? Have you begun work on it yet? I have 300 pages in manuscript. It's not coming together. So when I finish the next Rios book, I'm going to go back to it and try to figure out what the problem is. In that way, I guess the Rios books are almost easier because you do have that clothesline. I do, <laughs> and because they're mysteries. So, I mean, this is where the formulaic aspect of mysteries is helpful. You know, writing a novel. In your podcast, now, you converted that into basically a radio play, right? Yeah, it's a radio play. So have you ever thought about writing screenplays? Well, I never had until I adapted Lear Sleeping Head for the podcast. I'm 65. And I have projects I want to get done, and so I really can't allow myself to become distracted by things that I don't know how to do, unless there's a compelling reason to do it. You've won several Lambda Literary Awards. Winning an award, does that, what does that do for you, do you think? You know, there are so many books out in the marketplace that it's helpful for visibility. Um, I think that's why there's been a proliferation of literary awards. Everyone's like struggling, you know, to, to for their book to stand out. Personally, of course, it's like thrilling, but that's fairly ephemeral. <laughs> it doesn't really make any difference in terms of writing. Writing is still a chore. Well, when you're working as your own publisher, obviously ebooks you can get on Amazon or wherever. Do you, is it print-on-demand? Do you print 500 copies? How do you do that? I'm doing print-on-demand. I have the infrastructure for the print books, and Carved and Bone is available both as a hardback and in uh, paper. And I'm working with a distributor who basically sends my books out to bookstores or whatever, but it is a print-on-demand thing because I don't really have the capacity to have a 1,000 books lying around. Michael Nava, what's the title of the sequel to Carved in Bone, and when will we expect to see it? So it's called Lies with Man um, from Leviticus. Tentatively, it'll be out spring 2021. 
You've been listening to an interview with Michael Nava, whose latest novel, Henry Rios' novel, is Carved in Bone. And you can go to his website, michaelnavawriter.com. These books are available through websites at various bookstores around the country. The Henry Rios podcast will soon be available in the Area 941 section of the kpfa.org website. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.